You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, and welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. Today's session is Ask Emergency and Critical Care Specialist, Part 2. Today, you'll be hearing the voices of Drs. Omar Ahmed, Adam Thomas, Mario Francis Pergazam, Danish Ahmed, Dee Hoyano, Chloe Lemire-Elmore, and Donovan McDonald. This panel was recorded on March 31st, 2020. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenters' homes and without professional equipment. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the podcast. So I'll quickly go through introductions. So we've got the same panelists as last time. My name is Omar Ahmad. I'm an eMERGE and uh, ICU physician in Victoria, BC. I'm the department head for eMERGE and critical care for Island Health. Uh, we have uh, Adam Thomas, again, my good friend and uh, renowned international uh, podcaster and author of the international Internet Book of Critical Care. Uh, he is an eMERGE doc as well as a uh, current fellow in the UBC ICU program. We have uh, Dr. Danish Ahmad, who is a eMERGE and critical care trained doc. Actually, he's also triple, he's triple boarded, actually, I, internal medicine critical care and emergency medicine. He works in New York City in the epicenter that is uh, COVID. And uh, he is uh, working at the Quaternary Care Center, Mount Sinai, uh, right in the heart of, of uh, New York City. We have uh, Dr. Mario Francis Progassum, who is also an eMERGE and critical care trained physician working in Victoria and uh, on in the lower mainland. Uh, we have um, Chloe Lemire-Elmore, who is one of the medical leads for the hospitalist program here at Island Health. Um, and uh, finally, we have Dr. Donovan McDonald, who uh, is, was here last time. You just didn't see him, but he has uh, been keeping us organized and uh, making sure that uh, we try and get to as many questions as we can. Um, as before, we have no conflicts of interest. Uh, Mario, Adam, and I are part of ROSE, uh, R-O-S-E, which is a, a group of physicians, critical care trained. Uh, most of us are eMERGE medicine trained as well, who provide uh, rural supports to our, our physician colleagues uh, via an app. You can look us up at rosetelehealth.com. R-O-S-E, telehealth.com. There are other uh, virtual care supports for our uh, rural physicians as well as other physicians who may be deployed into positions that they're not all that comfortable with uh, and maybe not have specific training in areas that they may see themselves working in, they are welcome to call us or uh, also look at the RCCBC website for access to other uh, virtual health supports for our physician colleagues. As before, uh, this is uh, we have been declared to be experts, uh, but again, just want to make it clear we are not experts. We are just people that are working in the trenches and uh, learning as we go. Uh, there are no experts really in this field because, again, this domain is all so new to us. Um, things are changing daily, as we said last time, so what we say uh, today might be completely different tomorrow. And there may have been an article that was just published five minutes ago that may refute some of the things we'll say. Um, there's lots of literature. Everything's being uh, being reported, which is great on the one hand because there's really good information sharing, but at the same time, there's a lot of studies with poor methodological quality that uh, may misguide us. So uh, be careful with what you read and uh, be aware that, uh, that it may, the suggestions uh, may, not be, uh, may not be super strong. Lots of controversies as well about uh, how to treat, how not to treat. And uh, as you all know, 
recommendations are changing all the time, and we'll get into a few of the things that have changed since we just spoke just a few days ago. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Blumen, thank you, Bob, for inviting us today. Thank you, Stephanie, for having us. Uh, we I had given the same proviso last time that uh, we um, we were doing this under great um, time constraints given our um, commitments to our health authorities, and so there wasn't a lot of time to put together PowerPoint uh, slides and robust uh, presentations. We're, we are chatting with about our experiences and um, sort of doing this off the cuff, so to speak. Um, so please, uh, please bear with us. Uh, in terms of expectations, we will try to get to as many questions as we as we can, but there is no way we can get to all of them. There are literally hundreds of them. And as Dr. Blumen said, there will be upcoming topics from addictions and maternity, uh, and I believe on PPE as well, that they can go into more depth in regards to those topics. It's hard to address all questions when we have a crowd of uh, well over 2,200, I'm told. So there's different uh, backgrounds of people um, from massage, massage, registered massage therapists, uh, eMERGE docs, critical care docs, anesthesiologists, nurses, physiotherapists, etc. So it's a broad range of audience to speak to. So we won't be able to get to all of your questions, but we will try and get to the ones that have uh, the, most, uh, the most likes. So if you do see a question on Slido that you like, uh, click on it and we'll, we'll definitely address the ones that uh, seem to be the most popular. A lot of people have asked, uh, and a theme in the previous uh, questions were, what are our sources of truth? Uh, where do we go to, to to find important information? So we'll mention a few right off the top. Uh, two that we mentioned last time were always looked. What we speak of will be relevant to our particular scenarios, our particular situation in our communities. And we look to our medical health officers um, for guidance in regards to our community spread and travel and our risk factors. And uh, we also look to our health authorities to give us uh, guidance on various questions in regards to therapies and PPE and, uh, and whatnot. So make sure that, uh, that you look to those two uh, sources. Of course, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry is doing an absolutely amazing job and speaks to, uh, speaks to us on a daily basis. So definitely look to her. Her uh, transcribed um, reports uh, or watch her live. Um, a couple other sites uh, that I really think are fantastic is one uh, to plug Adam and the work that he's doing with the Internet, Internet Book of Critical Care, IBCC. Um, so make sure you look at that. It's, it's uh, constantly being updated and as updates are added to certain sections, those uh, those areas will be uh, will be highlighted, will be bolded, so you know to look to look for new things there. I think EMRAP and the work that uh, Mel Herbert, uh, something that a uh, resource that I've looked to since I was a young resident, and and continue to look at, uh, and he does great work. And in fact, had a live uh, a live session tonight as well, just before uh, just before ours. Other sources, lots of uh, societies are doing great work. So CMAJ just published some, uh, some information uh, on their website as well as in the uh, most recent journal. CAPE, Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, has some great stuff. Uh, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine uh, also has great stuff. And finally, um, Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So those are some, some great places to, uh, to find uh, information. Um, I'm just going to chat. I think it's important. I know we um, we talked about um, uh, acts of kindness last time, and I think it's important as we go through this. It's not sort of I uh, wouldn't mind just sharing a few things myself, maybe Mario and, and Donish. Um, we don't want to belabor it. We'll just go over this for a minute or two. I just think it's important to uh, to share uh, how the communities are coming together and how the people we treat are supporting us, and it's just really heartwarming. And I think we're going to really need 
these examples as we go forward as we, we're going to face some tough times with exhaustion and some tough cases and maybe some tough, tough, uh, tough uh, triage uh, decisions going forward. Uh, so three quick things from my end. I, I came home from an emerge shift uh, last week and found uh, a bunch of PPE RN95 stuffed into my, uh, my mailbox. I thought that was very sweet. Yesterday we opened the door and found cans of soup and some other food that I thought was nice that friends had dropped off. And uh, friends know very well that my wife and I are very busy with the health authority and doing lots of planning. So our kids have kind of become feral and they're, they're, they're uh, fending for themselves. So someone actually dropped off this beautiful foot, uh, futsal table, foot, um, table outside our house. So the kids are just loving that and playing lots of futsal. Uh, Mario, do you have any, uh, any things you want to share with us quickly? Moving things that I kind of saw today was that um, uh, the individual emergency departments, after receiving an outpouring of um, you know food and people packing the fridges with lunches so everyone can work, uh, they've all been for uh, donations to the local community to help support some of the local businesses as well. Which I thought was, uh, you know, it was a great indication of how connected we are and how everyone's kind of in it with each other. And uh, thank you, Donish. I think it's uh, similar to what Mario's experience is. I can't experienced. I can't uh, remember the last time our ER staff uh, on the Upper East Side has had to pay for lunch themselves. There've been local businesses and local restaurants coming coming in and catering lunch for us almost on a daily basis, both for the ICU team and for the ER team. And I think my personal favorite that uh, most people, most providers in New York City and frontline providers in New York City are appreciating is every day at 7 p.m. So everyone kind of coming out on their balconies and kind of banging pots and pans and cheering on for essential workers. I think that's been a big morale boost to all of us. Thank you, Donish, and I, I follow you on uh, on Instagram and uh, I've seen all the uh, the personal treats that you've been getting, that big basket of uh, fruits that you received the other day, and then I think you received, what, 20, uh, 20 buckets of ice cream uh, was what I saw today. So, um, yeah, that was... I uh, made my uh, made my soup seem less uh, less impressive. I felt less loved. Um, so since the uh, thank you guys. So since the last time we uh, we chatted, things continue to heat up and expand across the world. So we talked about there being 530,000 cases confirmed uh, less than a week ago. Now we're up to 857. So quite a dramatic increase there, um, and we'll be pretty close to a million um, probably by the end of the week. I suspect. Um, and uh, last time we spoke, it was, we had about 24,000 deaths, just under 24,000. Now we're up to 42,000. Um, and uh, Mario, can you talk a little bit about uh, what's happening uh, locally at uh, in Fraser Health? Uh, is my mic better now? Um, so uh, in Fraser, it's um, pretty. Uh, it's kind of started to pick up. Today we admitted at least five uh, suspected COVIDs with a pretty good history and physical for that, um, as well as investigations. We're up to uh, 30 vents in Fraser and um, 35 plus COVID positive patients in the ICU uh, separate from that. And Adam, how about you in uh, in Vancouver Coastal? What, uh, what kind of numbers are you seeing and, and um... Have you intubated? Have you extubated any since we last spoke? Every extubation is a win, so we have been extubating across the region, and uh, the numbers as of yesterday were 58 hospitalized patients, 18 in ICU areas, and 10 ventilated. And in uh, an Island Health, we have uh, 
five in the ICU in total, four in Victoria, and uh, one in uh, in Nanaimo. And uh, of those five, uh, three are intubated. One is on uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. Um, one is getting closer to extubation, but uh, probably still a couple of uh, still a couple of days off. Um, but those numbers pale in. Sorry, uh, Anne, were you going to say something there? No, you're good. Oh. Sorry. Um, but those numbers pale in comparison to what we're going to hear from Donish. Donish, can you give us a little update about uh, your numbers and, and how things are looking for you on the ground? Sure. So uh, right now at our hospital, we have 454 inpatient COVID cases confirmed, 89 of whom are on mechanical ventilation. Um, we're, in, we're extubating maybe a handful every once in a while. Uh, I think we're probably at a total of maybe seven at this point. And that includes palliative extubations. Um, and how how are you coping with uh, with all these numbers? And where you um, what's your ICU capacity like? Sure. So it's uh, it's been unbelievable. We're just closing down more and more floors and converting them into makeshift ICUs. Um, it's not ideal because a lot of the rooms don't have central monitoring, but we'll have monitoring in the rooms. And obviously, given that they're in isolation and droplet and what have you, we're uh, having some difficulty kind of getting the best way to monitor these patients. But I think we've opened up about six ICUs. Um, so it's just been every floor is just getting converted into another COVID unit. All of our step-downs were even converted into ICUs. Uh, we're using our PACU now as our MICU. We've resorted to using our anesthesia vents and converted an entire floor that's just being run by the anesthesia service since they're familiar and used to uh, managing vents. So it's been kind of all hands on deck and, and clearing out as many patients as we can. And that started probably weeks before the... Uh, or not weeks, but maybe a week before a real big wave come in where we stopped doing elective cases and tried to clear out uh, the ORs and surgical floors if they weren't emergent. And um, those are all sort of physical places in your hospital. I think you sent me some photos of, of your, I think it was your lobby where you guys had erected uh, a bunch of new beds. Those look very impressive. But... Right. It's, 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 it's pretty crazy. So we have, um, we have a massive tent that probably has another 40 40 rooms that was erected in the middle of our campus is because really used to be a courtyard. And as you're referring to, any open space that we have anywhere on the ground floor in the lobby has been converted into just patient rooms. We probably put another 30 patient rooms just in the lobby. Um, wherever we can find space, there's a space being put forth. And also, actually, our hospital backs out onto Central Park. And right across the street in Central Park, we uh, have an NGO that's now set up a essentially a tent hospital that has a capacity to take 68 patients, and currently the plan is for them to take some of our uh, less sick patients to kind of offload the main hospital and working in conjunction with them. That uh, is still getting built, but should be done in the next couple of days. And so they're building the hospital uh, for you. Are you you're going to staff that, I take it, or is that... I think, they I think it's going to be... They're going to be the ones staffing it at that point. Okay. And I mean, just speaking at New York, on uh, overall, we now have our largest convention center in Manhattan has been converted into three separate hospitals within that single convention center to plan to take non-COVID patients. I'm sure as everyone's seen, we have the uh, USS Comfort now docked off, off uh, shore of uh, New York, and it's going to take another 1,000 patients. And again, the plan, as unrealistic as it is, is to keep that as a non-COVID hospital. It's kind of an escape valve for all of the um, non-COVID patients in the city to go to so we can free up more beds for COVID patients. So it's uh, it's been interesting times and definitely unheard of. Wow, that's that's amazing. And and um, you'd mentioned you've got anesthesia helping you out. Are they functioning? Uh, I mean, a lot of questions that come up is 
physicians that aren't used to working within the critical care setting, uh, such as anesthesiologists, how are they being supported? Are they functioning independently or do they have support from, uh, from you as an ICU attending? So exactly, uh, it's a great question. So they're essentially functioning independently. However, with more critically ill patients or patients that they're having trouble with, they can certainly consult um, any one of us who are in the hospital and we have an escalation policy as to who they can go to. But for the most part, uh, they've been doing an excellent job of, um, of kind of uh, managing the patients on their own. It's taken quite a bit of a burden off of the, um, the critical care team itself. So we tried to triage them to triage some of the lesser, uh, the less sick patients, if you can call them that, since they are going to an ICU. Okay, and um, I mean, certainly here in, uh, in Victoria, I've got to give a shout out to our uh, anesthetists here who have put together a, uh, a rapid airway response team and, and have agreed to, uh, to help um, with tr some transports locally as well as uh, help us with, uh, with resuscitations and, and uh, want to get involved as we start to get to the point where we're getting a bit overwhelmed and just a shout out to our local anesthesiologists. And I, I know across the island anesthesiologists are stepping up to, uh, to help out. Uh, other people that have that have really stepped up to help us out are, are folks like uh, like Donovan, um, senior uh, residents. Um, and so, a question that a lot of we've been getting a lot of is how how have you guys been deploying? How have you been deploying residents uh, in your neck of the woods? Right. So it's been interesting. Uh, Off-service residents have been given an option to either work on in the ER, the floors, or the ICU. And then we try and uh, accommodate their requests. But uh, in the last couple of days, I've seen, unbelievably enough, a couple of Durham residents, and we're very grateful to have them in the emergency department. We've seen some OBGYN residents down there as well. And on the floors, it's kind of similar. You're just seeing really off-service uh, residents uh, kind of manning medicine floors and helping out as best they can. And for those who've kind of decided to triage themselves or choose to go to the ICUs, we put together kind of a crash course and multiple sim classes throughout the week to try and get them up to speed as to what it is will be expected of them and, and kind of what to look out for these critically ill patients. But like I said, all hands are on deck. Everyone's involved uh, from top to bottom, and, and it's just greatly appreciated. And it seems like the whole house of medicine has come together to kind of battle this virus. And uh, I hope this, uh, this camaraderie and this unity continues well past this epidemic. This is, again, just unheard of. There's no sniping between services. There's nothing like that. It's just everyone's offering whatever they possibly can to help out in the fight. Um, how are you um, with the, I think you're, what, you've intubated dozens now, and you've probably intub int admitted over 100 now. You've had some pretty pretty tough uh, intubations. You've had some pretty tough end-of-life uh, conversations as well. Um, I know you're feeling pretty exhausted. How are you coping with all of this mentally, and what are your, uh, what are your team uh, teammates doing to, to keep yourself uh, uh, above water? And sure, I think, I think a lot of I think it's tough. I think a lot of us on a normal basis will resort to pretty uh, physical activity. However, all the gyms and team sports and all that are shut down in New York City. So a lot of us have taken on running um, in terms of support from the administration. What's been kind of nice is we'll have much more just kind of check-ins with each other in smaller groups. We're trying to do uh, as much as we can in terms of just having these kind of venting sessions. Um, it's been difficult, I think. It's been difficult for a lot of reasons, I think. One, the patient volume and the acuity is, is again, just it's high and it's stressful on a daily basis when you rewalk in. You're not going to have an easy shift anymore. Uh, and I think also just the physicality of it, of being under the PPE, wearing the same mask for eight hours, kind of being worried and having this anxiety in the back of your head that you're 
are you going to be the next one who gets COVID and the next uh, provider who's going to kind of go down with this illness? Uh, it's been tough. And me personally, I think it's been kind of uh, running has been a physical outlet and just kind of reaching out and, uh, and talking with colleagues uh, has, been the, has been the biggest boon. And, and, and right now I'm actually currently uh, under active monitoring because I started uh, popping symptoms last night, such so as feeling febrile and, uh, and having myalgias and, and extreme fatigue. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely real, and it's a scary time to be practicing, but also an honor. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, please be safe. We're sorry to hear that, but, at this, you know, it's, it's, and I hate to say it, doesn't, it's not surprising, I guess, given the, the volume you've been seeing and the number of people you've been intubating and, and, uh, and then just also the, uh, just the pure physical exhaustion. Well, it's got it's to dampen your immune system somewhat, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, we hope you you feel better soon. Um, we're all worried about you. Uh, what in in that regard? What can you talk about? Some novel PPE things that you've maybe heard about, or, or just talk about maybe what what kind of PPE are you guys using right now? And and maybe talk about some of the things that you've heard of other New York hospitals uh, having to resort to um, because of potential sure, sure. Uh, upcoming shortages. Sure, I think that uh, at Mount Sinai we've been uh, we've been decent on our on our uh, on our PPE. So what we've been using are the gowns, the booties the hat, um, face masks, and the N95s. Uh, the only thing we've been doing is we've been uh, keeping one N95 for the entirety of a shift, which is not ideal, but better than some of what my colleagues have had to deal with around the city. Um, and then we're recycling those N95s of the shift. We're en masse. They will um, kind of uh, recycle them and bring them back to us in a couple days to, uh, to reuse. Uh, some of the craziest stuff that I've heard at other hospitals is uh, Yankee Stadium, oddly enough, donated all of their ponchos to one of the local hospitals, and now that hospital is using the ponchos as their PPE, which is upsetting to some of my friends who are actually Mets fans. But it's um, it's sad, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of dangerous, and it's frightening to think that you know this uh, this city that's so wealthy and so kind of uh, had this experience with disaster in the past, 9-11 could be caught so off guard without PPE, and we're just resorting to just some craziness, really. Yeah, it's unheard of. Um, um, yeah, uh, having to support the Mets, uh, for one thing, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> the ponchos, wow, that's uh, crazy times. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you said you're on, on observation right now. Um, how are you isolating? How do, how do you return back to, uh, to work? And um, have you been swabbed? Sure. So swabbing has been very limited. Uh, it's, the prevalence of COVID is so incredibly high here. I think we just essentially assume if you're having symptoms, you have it at this point. Um, uh, the plan for me is uh, seven days off or 72 hours without fever, uh, whichever happens first. So my guess is I'll probably be back or, or looking to get back within the next three days or so, which that's kind of our guidelines as it stands. And for social for isolation, it's pretty easy for myself as a single guy living in a, uh, in a, in a studio or in, a, in an apartment in uh, Manhattan where I just kind of come home and I'll just spend the next couple days here. Um, for some of my colleagues who have been exposed or who have been presumed to test positive, uh, they've either um, rented hotels or now what's happening is the administration's actually put forth a number of hotel rooms or uh, dormitories where these, uh, these staff, the staff can kind of stay away from their family and kind of uh, avoid infecting them as well. So we've come a long way from where this started three weeks ago to where we are now, where now the administration's offering places to kind of self-isolate away from family, which has been uh, a great stress relief to uh, a lot of the, uh, the staff. 
you said that you would um, your criteria to going back as early as three days is lack of fever. Does that if you still say you've got a runny nose or or myalgias or other symptoms that are mild, obviously allowing you to still work, would you would they allow you to work? Is it just the fever alone being a febrile that uh, that allows you to to return? Yeah, it's it's essentially the fever is their big standing point, uh, and 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 I, I think we all know that's. Uh, a little cavalier, but uh, I think they need all the bodies they can get to kind of be on the front lines and trying to help people out. And especially, I think thirty to we're expecting thirty to forty percent of us to be out at any one time. So, um, I think they just need mm-hmm. providers. And would you? Uh, I guess the I would assume that you would be wearing a, a mask um, for the entire time. I guess and uh, yeah, fully, fully gown, fully in PPE, and avoid kind of uh, passing on the infection. Uh, to anyone else or the other thing is they'll probably deploy me for a couple of days to just start telehealth services so I can kind of help however I possibly can. There is a certain amount of guilt uh, in being out as you see your colleagues kind of on the front lines. Yeah, I'm sure. But that being said, my gosh, you've done a lo- uh, an incredible amount of work and seen an incredible number of patients and you guys have been at this for a few weeks now. So um, kudos to you. And Thank you so much um, on behalf of the panel and, and I'm sure all those listening for actually taking the time out to, to talk to us both uh, tonight and, and, and a few days ago. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I think we're going to maybe move over to uh, a few questions and start to uh, start to get through those. And uh, um, so maybe, uh, Chloe, do you want to sort of um, address this first question? So uh, I am a family doctor in Vancouver with virtual care. What are the criteria over the phone to determine if someone needs to go to the emergency? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Appreciating that telehealth adds that added challenge of not being able to lay eyes on the individual and take their oxygen, their saturations. Um, You know, it would have to do with a number of factors, the clinical as well as the the social and the individual's ability to isolate and care for themselves. Um, So depending on the the patient demographics, um, with the younger population, it would be that air hunger and ability to catch their breath, um, just really beyond I'm feeling like I have the flu, but um, something else is going on, going in to at least be assessed. Uh, Here on the island, we're not swabbing symptomatic patients in the uh, the community. It would just be on presentation to the emergency room. And um, and so that would warrant an assessment in terms of their, their symptoms, the, the profound air hunger or weakness, some lightheadedness. In terms of social factors as well, um, so what we're seeing uh, in the non-critical care patient population, so the ones who are, you know, not, they're not full code, uh, they're presenting with more insidious symptoms, um, but, you know, quite unwell. And um, so with the, when there's a, that the element of confusion superimposed on some mild dementia, inability to self-isolate or care for themselves would be reason to send them into the hospital. Um, and also if they're somehow, if they have vulnerable people in the, in the house and they're unwell and can't isolate, presently we have the capacity to, um, to admit them. That may well change in the future, but right now uh, we would certainly send them in for, for consideration. Um, and the uh, the BMJ has an article that was just recently released called uh, a remote assessment COVID nineteen a remote assessment in primary care. So sort of it's got a, a nice little table there. Um, my wife just sent this to me as well, and it talks about um, you know how to do your exams so over the phone. Ask uh, 
patient to describe their, their state of breathing, uh, color of their face and lips, uh, and then looking over at them if you can through, if you do have video, their general demeanor, skin color, um, and they talk about uh, checking respiratory function. So as we talked about last time, like obviously inability to speak, um, get them to maybe walk around a little bit uh, holding their device or their laptop just to make sure that sometimes they're okay at rest when they start moving. It really does, uh, that extra bit of exertion can, can really uh, bring out symptoms that may not be there at, at rest. And then specifically ask them, how is your breathing? Is it worse today than yesterday? Uh, what does your breathlessness prevent you from doing? And then there are certain um, things that people may be able to take at home on their own. Of course, the pulse, um, their temperature, um, and if they are asthmatics, maybe they've got a, a peak flow um, meter um, and possibly blood pressure if they have that. So things they can look look to uh, to give you a bit more information. And then again, we talked about uh, O2 saturation monitors. So if people do have access to those, um, that would be uh, that would be helpful uh, also. Um, could you, and then we will um, we'll turn over to Chloe again for this next question. What recommendations and advice do you have for primary care providers in the community? Um, I guess it's kind of a lot broad of questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, one thing that I have noticed, in fact, with um, both the admissions that we did this um, or this week or yesterday and today, they, um, as I said, it was that insidious onset. And in fact, one of them was an elderly gentleman, 83, long list of comorbidities, uh, including CHF, chronic edema, who had been to his family doctor a week prior um, with what he described as URTI symptoms, uh, was diagnosed as having allergies, um, sent home. He had a, has a private caregiver who was coming to help him out with uh, just some ADLs and what have you, uh, who in fact had been febrile and had some symptoms four days prior. And um, at the end of the day, he was just doing worse, uh, fell on his way to the washroom, brought in. Pretty vague history of dyspnea mildly hypoxic but not much and um, with his venous stasis ended up being diagnosed with a cellulitis so uh, was downgraded said okay well maybe he doesn't need this NP swab um, but then manifested a cough the next day so the point of this story is really that insidious presentation and that we have to all have a really uh, high index of suspicion any new symptoms right now um, we've got to be thinking about COVID and ruling it out I mean this presentation was 12 days into social ice or into in not quarantine, but social distancing. This fellow didn't get out a lot, but had had contact with someone who was positive. And then the next admission who came in, we suspect was actually one of the same patients um, or people who was looked after by the caregiver. So that high index of suspicion. Um, and then also maintaining, like if for some of the elderly patients, I'm not sure what uh, some of the GP's capacity is, but uh, reaching out to them as well with everybody on quarantine, lockdown, the isolation, um, they aren't all as savvy with the t telehealth options. Uh, so some, some outreach as well as just uh, waiting for them to call in. On the island here, they've separated, they've opened up clinics. So while 80% of GP visits are happening through telehealth, some are still presenting those that need to be assessed. And they've opened up two separate clinics, one for patients with respiratory symptoms that's being staffed by a younger group of, um, or, you know, volunteer family physicians, uh, who feel that duty to care and don't see themselves as high risk at getting the disease. So that, um, that separation and uh, making sure that there's a safe access for patients to see a doctor when they need to. Um, thank you, Chloe. And um, Mario, I don't know where you get the time, but I understand you're running some sort of uh, multi-center trial on, uh, on outpatient management and follow-up. Can you speak a little bit mm -hmm. to that? And 
Yeah. So, um, can you hear me? We can hear you. Great. Thank you. Um, we, uh, we, one of the big questions about uh, how to assess these patients from home using a telephone or a video application is going to be, I think, a, we think a crux of managing the tsunami of patients who present to the eMERGE and being followed up afterwards. Um, in the process of fast-tracking uh, ethics for the use of the ROT score uh, to evaluate dyspnea um, in patients. Uh, for the most part, I agree with what, you're, uh, what you've said before, that uh, assessing the patient by asking them open-ended questions and seeing if they have breathlessness, breathlessness on, um, uh, when they're talking about their symptoms is key and their deterioration. Um, there was a, a very small uni-centers trial done out of Israel that showed that if you t ask somebody to take a deep breath and count to 30, and if they're... Uh, if they can do it, if they can count to 30 uh, before they, you get to 8 seconds uh, of timing them or they uh, are unable to get to 8, uh, eight seconds, that, that can be predictive of hypoxia. Um, it was pretty poorly sensitive, but uh, we're hoping that uh, adding a physical exercise um, component to the lot score uh, plus the lot score itself might lead to some benefit. The only caveat that I have with the pulse oximeters at home are that there are probably two classes of home pulse oximeters. The ones that cost $300 or more uh, from reputable brands like Massimo, uh, and I don't own stock in Massimo, I wish I did, but I don't. Um, they, uh, they are fairly accurate to hospital standards. Uh, the other stat probes that are you can find off of Amazon for like 40 bucks or even uh, just under $100 are really only accurate for high saturations between uh, 93 and 99. So it, those two do have to be interpreted with some, some caution. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Mario, and thank you, uh, Chloe. Um, we wanted to chat a little bit about um, some changes that may be coming um, in regards to high-flow nasal cannula. Um, we spoke early on as this disease um, was coming to the fore about the high-flow nasal cannula being um, likely aerosol generating. There's some significant controversy in regards to that now. Um, and um, we're chatting about this at the provincial level, and there's still some disagreement amongst us. But maybe, Adam, do you want to touch a little bit on, uh, on that just briefly, um, where things might be going there? Yeah, I mean, say, um, uh, Anish Mitra Adesuri did a really good deep dive on this and is trying to help inform the conversations as we go forward in the province. I know there must be a lot of anxiety in everyone listening saying, this must be airborne, it seems super infectious. Um, the caveat is, guys, we're learning every day uh, more aspects. We discussed on the last webinar um, that it's not airborne, but it's born in air, meaning that it can still be viable, uh, even if it's dispersed by talking, spitting, sneezing, coughing, and it can live on surfaces for a long time. So there's a, a difference between, uh, does the high flow do the, does, sorry, does the high flow, right now the literature update is organizations are differing on the fence whether they say you should be in a negative pressure room if you're giving high flow or not, but the growing evidence is we should be delivering the standard of care to respiratory failure patients. Um, and high flow can be in that armamentarium to really help patients. Uh, I'm sure Donish can tell us, and um, the Italians and a lot of American sites are using awake proning 
with high flow or CPAP uh, to get patients without intubating them. The one thing, Adam, that I think might throw a wrench in some of this stuff is that there is a study uh, done out of New Hampshire that's being submitted to the BMJ for pre-publication where they squabbed, uh, where they got aerosolized air samples from various places in the hospital and did find virus growing in it. Um, again, not yet accepted, but uh, that, 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 that study is kind of hanging out there. Oh, I, t I totally agree. Like, Nebraska's public study quite similar to that. I think we are learning that this virus is everywhere in the hospital um, and PPE will be appropriately covered update or PPE recommendations will be covered from there. So it's a growing literature base and we don't know the right answer yet. Uh, so more to come at this point, as Adam said, uh, our provincial working group is working on it, but uh, there's still quite a bit of controversy for uh, amongst us. So um, we are sticking with a conservative um, recommendation for now to uh, to consider an AGMP until uh, until we come back with more information. In that regards, there's been um, suggestions from our Italian colleagues saying that uh, you know maybe we have been recommending here provincially as intensive care docs to admit these patients early to the ICU and consider early intubation but we're sort of maybe starting to see a trend of maybe, we're, maybe we might have to about, about face um, there's more and more uh, experts or people who have experienced this disease saying you know what maybe we're jumping the gun too soon and and these patients that I like to call the happy hypoxemics um, because they look so well, because they're still mentating, because their lactates aren't going up, you know, maybe the hypoxemia isn't as bad as we think it is, and maybe the therapy for the hypoxemia is actually worse than the hypoxemia itself, because, of course, intubating these patients is not without significant risk. Um, and so there's suggestions to continue using a high-flow nasal cannula, maybe using non-invasive ventilation within negative pressure rooms, and staving off intubation for as long as we can. And uh, again, the, the idea is one, they, they are the happy hypoxemics, and so maybe the intubation doesn't actually help them. But number two is just in terms of keeping them off the vent. If we can take, you know, the average day that they're on the vent is anywhere from, you know, it's 10 days, but it can be as long as 21 days. And so if we can, instead of intubating them on day one, if we can keep them on high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation for two, three, four days, maybe that 10-day time period of being on the mechanical ventilation and all the risks that they're now at, at exposed to uh, will only be four days or five days. And similarly, as we sort of go in, forward in this pandemic, we start to see more and more patients uh, with such a valuable resource, the ventilator, if we're able to allocate that more and not have it tied up with individual patients for as long, um, it, uh, it, might, uh, it might do us very, very well. So more to come uh, on that. Um, Donish, can you um, just go a little bit uh, into uh, just review your intubation uh, protocols and just sort of your general, just very briefly, how you approach intubation and any tips in particular for, uh, for our audience that you've learned as you've done dozens of these patients? I think what you said is right. Um, I think we're starting to have a lower, or I can say higher threshold for intubating these patients. Um, Previously, maybe a week before, we would intubate them with a O2 sat on a non-rebreather at 92, and now we're kind of waiting for them to dip into the into the 80s. It just seems like these guys, and I agree, it's kind of these hy happy hypoxics where you're just kind of talking to them, you're looking at their O2 sats, and, and you're just kind of wondering how they're so comfortable being so low. Um, the biggest piece of advice I think that we've learned, and I think it's kind of what all the experts are saying, is that it has to be the most experienced intubator in the room. 
uh, as a in the emergency medicine residency, we had a as a faculty we had a pretty in depth conversation and had some controversy and disagreements as to whether or not we should allow the residency even be involved for a couple reasons. One is for are these even Again, we want to be an academic institution and teach as much as possible, but is it appropriate for a resident to be intubating or should it be the attending who, in theory, should be the most um, most expert intubator? Um, and so that's kind of the discussion we've had there. And upstairs in kind of the ICU realm, what we've started to do is we started to work in conjunction with anesthesia where we're doing these with just two providers in the room where, where it is mandated to have uh, either anesthesia doing the intubation or have anesthesia as a backup. And we've kind of made a very good um, therapeutic kind of uh, uh, team uh, up there. In terms of what my setup is, it's just high-dose paralytics and uh, RSI. Uh, we try and knock these guys out as quick as possible, obviously. Um, with induction, we'll, for the most part, we've been using just because the most available to us right now and what, uh, on the, between the floors and upstairs, we have the most um, most familiarity with is Atomidate. Uh, in the ER, we have been using uh, ketamine a little bit more, but for the most part, it's been Atomidate and mostly rock and uh, kind of uh, getting them into an RSI situation. And once they're out, we do what I've been waiting to do, just wait for them to be completely out so there's no coughing. Uh, nothing else. You have ideal circum, uh, ideal situation to intubate, and just waiting the full uh, 30 seconds to kind of get them paralyzed. Following that, um, it's if we're using the video laryngoscopy, uh, not only for ease of use, but also for the ability to kind of stand away from the airway, and um, and just kind of going from there. And once the ET tubes in place, what we will do is we'll attach directly onto the ventilator. Usually, we'll have the RT have preset up the vent and we'll just attach it at that point, uh, usually with a viral filter in place. Um, what I have seen, both with the intubations in the emergency department as well as with the uh, intubations upstairs in conjunction with anesthesia, we kind of learned is these guys drop their O2 sats incredibly quickly, so that's why it is important to have the most experienced hand uh, to do the intubations. And I remember doing one upstairs with one of the um, senior anesthesia attendings, and I remember we're standing there, and we put the tube in a quick as possible with that loss of peep with the paralysis and just that apneic time they dropped down to the sats in the 30s and I remember uh, talking to him I was like I was like is that just what you've been seeing as well and he's like absolutely and there's been plenty of uh, experience where you see these people just tank their oxygen saturations and I think we're uh, we're hearing that more and more I was listening to a few uh, few podcasts and people had uh, posted their experiences on Twitter of um, saturations dropping into the low 30s and I think you said the same and that and but that wasn't correlated with other signs of physiological distress, uh, meaning there was no um, tachycardia at all. So it's just kind of like the body didn't seem to really mind that physiologically they were still happy. Is that your experience also that you've seen these dangerously low sats? Yeah, and it's, and it's kind of uh, the first time it happened, I almost you know wet my pants. But kind of seeing this over and over and over again without having any other detrimental physiologic effect. We're just kind of getting used to it and just kind of accepting that these patients will desaturate uh, impressively so. And, it, and the other thing is it takes a long time for them to come back up. Uh, and often they require quite a, bit, a significant amount of PEEP to bring them back up. So definitely I, I've had that same experience. It's amazing in that one of the arguments I've heard about not intubating these patients um, is when we intubate them, you know, they, they, they lose all their PEEP. And they, they, they completely de-recruit and... We know yeah. they're, uh, they need that PEEP to maintain their alveolar um, 
patency. And so when we intubate them, we uh, we we shut that. We uh, lose all of that. And they they uh, they crump pretty quickly. Um, one question uh, for you, Adam. Um, can you address the role of an opid COVID? Uh, sorry, can you address the role of an opid COVID floor? referring to the hot zone at VGH and whether this will occur at all COVID hospital sites. We can avoid intubating a lot of these patients if we can use NIPPV, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, that requires a hot zone. Yeah, that's a complex question. Um, maybe I'll put it this way. So the hot zone, warm zone, cold zone are terms from viral outbreaks like Ebola, and they, they come from disaster medicine. The hot zone is the immediate location of patient care area where um, that potential pathogen is there. Uh, the warm zone is that area outside the patient care area that's still connected to with entrance and exit. And the cold zone is physically sh shut off from that warm zone. Now, at VGH, we have a cohort unit um, that has this set up, and our nursing team and care staff um, go between the warm and hot zone, um, but we don't have connections between the cold and the warm zone. Uh, the benefit of this is that you save on PPE because uh, those staff working in the warm and hot zone are saving, they're using one mask during their shift, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is that uh, you can specialize care in these areas and still deliver um, different modalities of respiratory support, meaning high flow nasal cannula, CPAP, BiPAP, uh, without uh, being worried about aerosolization because everyone in that cohorted unit right now is using uh, N95s while they're in that unit. And I will say is VGH is not the only site. Um, there's a lot of other sites that are working on this. Great. Thanks a lot, Adam. Um, another question is, with many patients presenting with um, influenza-like illness, GI symptoms in the ER and on the wards, is there a criteria or meaningful way to clinically di distinguish COVID from non-COVID? Um, and that's a great question. I wish there was an easy way to do that. Um, but I think at this point there there is not. I think um, until we can get uh, rapid access to quick turnaround swabs, um, you know, if people come in with uh, with those symptoms, um, then I think you have to assume they're COVID until proven otherwise. We know that from the GI literature that up to 20% of patients can present with GI symptoms alone, nausea, vomiting, or something as simple as just some mild abdominal pain. So we need to be very, very careful um, to, to consider those people probable until proven otherwise. We did just recently get approved uh, in BC to get uh, access to a rapid turnaround uh, swab um, and it's, uh, I think it's 45 minutes, so pretty quick. So that should give us some information fairly quickly. But we only ha we have very limited access to that and only a certain, a very small number of swabs. So those are being sent to more remote areas, in particular Northern Health and some areas in the Interior uh, Health Authority where uh, their turnaround times are significant because they have to be flown out or driven to other uh, regional centers to be uh, to, to, to find out if they to have the swabs tested. So um, if we can get more uh, widespread access to those 45-minute turnaround uh, swabs, that'll, uh, that'll certainly help us a lot. Um, but I think what we're telling our staff here is staff safety is absolutely paramount. So if you're, if you're not sure, your, your spidey sense is going off, uh, wear proper PPE and assume COVID until proven otherwise. The other thing you need to look into a little bit is, and it's different across the province, is what is the, uh, what is the prevalence of the disease in your community? 
And luckily in Island Health, it's still quite low. Um, whereas I think in the mainland, it's it's quite it's quite high. So that also will play into some of your decisions with other uh, with other cases that may present uh, with mild symptoms. Uh, the next question is for uh, for Chloe. Uh, what is the most um, information? What information would you like to communicate to hospitalists and ward physicians regarding management of COVID? Again, that's a pretty broad question. Um, we know that the, the management management um, is fairly straightforward. We can just give them supportive care with the oxygen. Um, shifting, moving target with regards to when we engage ICU. But if we were to look at the, the ward management for those patients that aren't heading there or those that because they're not deteriorating or they're, they're not candidates, um, I think something that's really been on my mind and I've been working on is commu the communication with families. Um, you think about the isolation that's going on for these individuals with a still stigmatized disease uh, by themselves on the ward, in the room. And so regular phone calls to the families um, and facilitating the patient speaking with the families as well. Uh, in terms of the oxygenation modalities, uh, at the Victoria General Hospital, we don't have any entire wards that can be negative pressure, but over at the Jubilee here they do. So, um, you know, in terms of other ways of providing oxygen therapy, increasing to the, you know, awake prone ventilation or OptiFlow, uh, the non-rebreather masks or BiPAP, those are other modalities you can consider. We have, we work alongside the, uh, the respirologists and intensivists with in applying these when the right time would be to make sure that it's safe um, and that again that all the staff are protected. We've come up with a clinical order set here on the island for the ward admission um, that's pretty comprehensive and available. If anyone wants that to be sent out to your health authorities, we're happy to share. Um, that goes over, uh, you know, the precautions, reducing transmissions, and basic lab work. Other principles that are important is just in light of the, the dwindling supply or the increasing skyrocketing demand for PPE, um, just preserving it as much as possible. So again, grouping tasks, thinking about the orders, how we can minimize the numbers of times the nurse has to go into the room. The nurses are getting creative as well. I know that Island Health has provided a bunch of longer IV tubing so that they can change the bags from the door if they're getting any IV meds. Um, again, we know that we don't want, we want to be judicious with that. Um, so I guess that sort of covers it. Thinking about the, the clinical situation, there's not a whole lot we can do. It's supportive, uh, but then also considering the individual and their experience and communications with families. Um, and then as things deteriorate, also addressing that conversation with the family and patient early enough so they can have the last conversation. Okay, that's, uh, that's great. Thank you so much. And uh, the only thing I'll add to that, um, from our point of view from ICU is um, most of these patients, as we know, they're the happy hypoxemics and they suffer significantly from, uh, from ARDS uh, type, uh, type of picture in the ICU. So we, we sort of suggest uh, being very, very careful with the fluids um, and try to keep them, keep them as dry as we can. Obviously, it's, it's, um, uh, Chloe knows that, but just chatting with our audience in general, we're really pushing to kind of yeah, be careful with, uh, with pushing the fluids and, uh, and giving really, really uh, good supportive care. Um, Adam, in regards to uh, further therapies, we, we chatted a bunch about um, various therapies that have been uh, looked at. I won't say studied because the studies are all very poor um, and not even studies per se, maybe just case series. Uh, can you talk to any updates in regards to medications and, and uh, what you suggest for therapy? So what I will say is just like the last webinar, there's no new convincing data that we can recommend any antiviral therapies or immunosuppression outside of RCTs. 
And we need to reaffirm that. Just what Chloe and Omar and Danish and Mario are saying is supportive care is the standard of care right now because we do not know if there's benefit or harm. So some things you guys have heard in the news, I'm sure, is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin being recommended by the French Health Ministry um, and, of course, tweeted by Trump. I will remind you, the two trials out are not really RCTs. There are no control groups. They're single center open label trials uh, and we are waiting bigger rcts that are going right now the catco trial um which is the, the canadian branch of the who that's looking at remdesivir hydrochloroquine calitra uh, that uh, danish already re referred to is already enrolling so we will get some more information there's big cohort of trials coming out of wuhan uh, all the time now and we're waiting for those so again no news there Another new therapy of probablescent plasma. JAMA uh, produced a five-patient case. The thinking is find patients that have serologic evidence that they have recovered when exposed to this viral infection, um, and then take out their plasma and deliver those antibodies uh, to someone who's critically unwell. Um, with COVID, there is no convincing evidence yet um, that patients do better um, outside of an RCT. And I remind, remind people that exposing people to blood products without knowing that there's a big benefit has its risks. Um, so just take that with a grain of salt. No new evidence yet. The last thing is steroids. Um, again, the BC CDC recommendations are uh, there are no routine use of steroids outside of other indications like asthma or COPD exacerbations, adrenal insufficiency, septic shock, etc. Uh, we do recognize that the SCCM came out with a weak recommendation in its use, um, in particular with this hyperinflammatory phenotype, but the evidence is still not there. Uh, it's coming. I know you guys want it. I'd love to know too, but we don't know yet. Um, so again, supportive care. Keep them dry like a pickle. Dry on the outside, a little moist on the inside, um, but try not to cause harm. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, um, hydroxychloroquine and uh, and and, uh, and Trump's recommendations. Uh, Danish, can you speak to? Uh, Dr. Trump, and, and if that has what kind of impact that's had among your patients and requests that may have come to you? Sure. So in the last week, I've had two different patients uh, request the Trump treatment. Uh, so it's been uh, it's been troubling. Um, the other thing, there's been a in the last couple of weeks, there's been a massive run on uh, Plaquenil and uh, even some certain uh, prescribers. Um, to uh, get it prophylactically for themselves, um, so it's been it's been troubling. Uh, where some of my rheumatology friends are saying that they're having trouble getting supply for their uh, for the room patients as well. So it's definitely had an impact. Uh, the president's words, and I think uh, he needs to remember that uh, he has a massive impact with what he says. Uh, thank you, Donish. And I think we uh, chatted last time, but I'll mention again. I just personally find it so fascinating that uh, you know, based on his advice, that uh, yeah, the, the chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, has uh, has flown off the uh, off the shelves, and it's completely uh, 
it's completely unavailable now, as you mentioned, and uh, and then how people have actually gone and, uh, to the fish stores and the uh, the pet stores to find uh, chloroquine phosphate, which is uh, a product used to uh, to as a antiseptic for fish tanks and uh, extremely lethal. One teaspoon can uh, can kill. So it is a uh, it is a highly toxic uh, medication um, when uh, when overdosed. Um, Danish, while we've uh, got you here, can you, uh, I think we skipped over uh, the hot and cold zones, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you guys are doing, because that must be something you guys must be doing given your significant space issues and capacity issues. Sure, so we, um, it's, it's been interesting to see how the ERs evolved over the last three weeks. So initially we converted our OBS unit into our COVID unit, that's about 27 rooms around, they've got the most negative pressure rooms in the emergency department. So we figured that would be a great place to turn into a resuscitative bays, and we kind of converted those into our recess bays. And that was for about the first week, and we quickly realized those 27 bays, which, again, are just curtained off from each other and are pretty small uh, spaces, became much too small for, um, for our COVID unit. And essentially, we reversed the emergency department where we turned our regular acute one, acute two area, which are much larger, uh, into the COVID unit and... Uh, but then we continued, but then we further realized that, that wasn't big enough either, and we converted the entirety of the ER minus our intake area into our COVID unit. And what we're finding is more and more is even patients who are asymptomatic, just given the prevalence of COVID in the community, if they're coming in for even penile discharge, they're finding we're finding to have uh, COVID even if you get a chest section for whatever reason. It's 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 absolutely wild. So we tried in the emergency department to keep it cold in a hot zone, but that quickly fell apart, realizing how many asymptomatic patients there were, and kind of we just continually had to change given the growing number of patients that were coming in with uh, uh, upper respiratory complaints, and then we just kind of uh, threw our hands up in the air and are trying our best, but it's it's incredibly difficult to separate hot and cold. It's been easier upstairs as anyone who's getting admitted to the hospital is getting a swab now. so. We do have a uh, non-COVID ICU and then all the other six other ICUs that we converted are turned into COVID ICUs. So it's easier to keep it hot and cold upstairs. Okay, uh, Mario, do you want to talk a little bit about um, hypoxemia um, versus hypoxia, please? Sure. Um, I think uh, one of the things that's uh, come out a lot with the COVID management is this idea of something called permissive hypoxemia, um, which is a little bit of a nebulous and kind of useless term, uh, but uh, the idea that patients can tolerate a uh, decreased um, saturation. Uh, I think the, the most important thing really is to focus on the fact that uh, what's the most important um, aspect of ensuring perfusion to these patients is um, uh, making sure that organ hypoxia doesn't occur, i.e. shock. So maintaining a saturation uh, and oxygen delivery that meets the base metabolic re uh, requirement. What that means is if your patient is having 88% and doesn't have a lactic acidosis or renal failure or altered level of consciousness, uh, then that, that you don't have to jump to increase your oxygen requirements or put them on the ventilator because of that number. That, uh, that person may be perfusing with that low saturation. And uh, that kind of loops back to the question of early intubation and why, are, why we're um, kind of moving away from that is that 
just because somebody shows that they have hypoxemia on a saturation monitor doesn't necessarily mean that they have end-organ hypoxia. So we don't have to rush to put a breathing tube in to somebody on six liters nasal prongs who's text texting on their phone. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Mario. Uh, one of the questions that's trending, uh, I think the highest right now, is uh, what is the course of illness, so the length, um, and then would you consider discharging patients on home O2? At which day of illness would this be considered safe oxygen levels being stable? Um, do you want to chat a little bit about the uh, discharging on home oxygen, um, Chloe? Sure, we could talk about what we're looking at here, and I'd also be curious to hear from Dinesh. <laughs> Um, just what's going on in New York and when they're sending them home. Um, so we're looking at right now, we're not there yet. So we've got patients who've come into hospital. Um, we're, we're using the home health monitoring program. We're getting all the, the software in place and the devices. Um, we're considering HOMO2, but haven't gotten to the point that we're discharging patients on it. But it's certainly something we'd like to learn from our more experienced uh, colleagues elsewhere to hear what's going on. I'm not sure if Adam, Dinesh, yeah. Uh, we haven't uh, we haven't done that yet, but it's something we've discussed. But I think our fear is uh, once we're becoming hypoxic, we just kind of see this cascade of getting worse. We're not sure who would or wouldn't get worse, but I don't have any experience in it. But uh, mostly we've just been admitting these patients. But it's a great idea. I don't don't can't say much more on it. Maybe I'll just um, give the listeners a general roadmap, guys. Th this changes all the time, but um, typically, and maybe Danish and everyone can tell me. I'm wrong, but this is what we're seeing too. Usually septum onset within two to five days of uh, exposure, whenever that is, it's hard to say. Um, and then between day five, day eight, uh, doing well, but usually present to hospital and requiring oxygen around day eight, day 10. And by day eight, by day, eight day 10, uh, quite reasonably getting admitted to ICU for higher oxygen levels. Now. Don't write that down and don't tell me, oh, Adam said it's day eight and they presented a day four. Because remember, day zero, we don't really know that. And it's hard and everybody's going to have their own immune response. But that's the general trend that we're seeing globally that's being reported. Okay, great. Thanks, um, Adam. Donish, um, sorry. And so we'll talk a little bit more about, there's another question that's trending highly here, is could you talk more about what is involved in the decision-making process regarding early intubation versus other management techniques? Uh, or sorry, other airway management techniques. So I'm not entirely sure I, I see that question going in two different directions, but well, I guess we can all take a stab at it. Um, maybe I'll start, and then uh, Mario, if you want to add in as well, and maybe Donish, you can talk about if things have changed as you've gone through seeing so many of these patients. But uh, so the first question, so the first part of it, what can you what can you talk more? Can you talk more about what is involved in the decision making process regarding early intubation? Um, so again, you know, for now, we're still looking to intubate these patients early. We're sort of feeling that once they're on six liters nasal prong or higher, or they're getting a bit tachypneic, or their blood pressure is starting to get a bit soft, we are looking to intubate them early with the idea that we know that they're going to crash during intubation, and uh, and we don't want to wait too long. Give us some time uh, to also uh, take our time to do this in a controlled manner, meaning we don't want to be rushing in, donning in uh, really quickly, and rushing in, and then uh, potentially having exposed areas. So that's kind of the thinking up until just recently in the last couple of days. Um, and so now, like I mentioned earlier, we're looking at maybe we need to just let these patients be happy 
um, the happy hypoxemics and just support them um, with non-invasive uh, measures. Um, and I think Chloe mentioned um, prone, awake proning. Um, so we know that especially if they have a lot of disease posteriorly, you might see that on an ultrasound. We're trying to avoid x-rays and uh, CT uh, of the chest. But if you do get those modalities, certainly ultrasound is helpful. But if you get a CT chest and you see there's a lot of posterior disease, allowing them to lie awake on their belly might actually recruit some of the lung that's anterior um, and uh, and actually de uh, decompress some of the lung that's uh, that's compressed posteriorly by the weight of the chest and the heart um, and the mediastinum. And so by taking off that, uh, that weight, you, they might actually de-recruit some of that injured lung. So that's one technique uh, that can be used. Also, just allowing patients to turn side to side. Uh, Mario is doing a study, and I think we're going to have Donish and myself and I think Adam getting involved in, in this multi-center study looking at which side of the lung is more injured and can you then put, a, put that... Uh, put that lung up again to sort of take the weight off it and does that improve their ultrasound findings, does that improve their uh, their PF ratios on their blood gases, that improves, improve their PAO2. So that'll be interesting, we'll, we'll report back as we learn more about that. Uh, in terms of other airway management techniques, I'm not sure in terms of airway if we're talking about just other airway devices. Um, so in regards to that, if, if that's what you're asking, I think it's a really important question that uh, is about, you know, there's sort of subglottic devices like your endotracheal tube that's your gold standard i guess tracheostomies uh, and then you've got superglottic devices such as your eye gels your your king airways your combi tubes your lmas and my my general sense well first of all i don't think anybody really knows my general sense is that these are not protective from from um, re uh, releasing aerosols and so i think um, people might get a false sense of security that these that patients are now they've got these superglottic devices in and they're no longer aerosol generating when you're doing CPR or you're bagging them. And my feeling is, and my anesthesiology colleagues agree that yeah, it's not protective. We have no evidence to say it is. They they are sitting loosely, uh, uh, superglottically, and uh, and so if that is a question, my advice to my colleagues is try and get a definitive airway device in ASAP. And if you're not, make sure you're in full PPE, uh, assuming it's uh, it's aerosolizing. Uh, and I don't know if that's uh, that was the gist of the question, but hopefully I answered it for you. And the other way I thought maybe you were asking is, as we talked about, um, considering non-invasive um, positive pressure ventilation, the Italians are talking more and more about CPAP as a means to get, uh, keep recruitment, um, but avoiding invasive uh, ventilation. And so that's uh, that's also a technique, again, at this point, that's definitely aerosolizing, especially if you have a good seal, it's probably it's probably okay, but we know that the seals break pretty quickly. People pull off their mask, and as soon as they do, there's a break in the circuit, and all of a sudden you've got a huge viral load uh, that's being aerosolized. So it uh, makes me very, uh, very nervous uh, to do that uh, at this point. And then we talked about high-flow um, nasal cannula as, uh, as an option as well. But again, lots of controversy around that. So if you are using that, make sure you're in full uh, airborne PPE. Um, anything to add, uh, Adam? Yeah, I see people talking about the CPAP helmets that the Italians um, use. I would love to use them. Uh, with the small expiration of this, uh, Intersurgical is the company that produces them in Italy. The Italian and Chinese governments have restricted the export of medical equipment because you understand that every country needs their own equipment right now. So um, I could be wrong. There could be somebody out there that has uh, a different lens on this. But from what I can find out is we can't 
import those from Italy, uh, and those are the ones that are actually approved by uh, Health Canada here in Canada. So we'll have to come up with a local uh, solution to that. If somebody can do that, you have some bioengineer friends, go for it. But yes, the CPAP helmets are used by the Italians. You can apply a mean airway pressure to a patient, meaning you can give them PEEP. It doesn't fall off easy, and it can decrease aerosolization, um, knowing that there's a blow-off valve that can disseminate droplets as well. But they look cool. The Italians love them. We can't get them. So what I have seen is some really cool um, uh, innovation from our colleagues, both in overseas and here uh, locally. Uh, there's a couple of groups that are trying to uh, circumvent the uh, lack of negative pressure and uh, potential aerosolization. For example, at uh, Vancouver Coastal, as well as in Massive, BC, I spoke to somebody on the Rosie line this morning, and they're developing an airway box to put over the patients where they're intubating. And um, this uh, box has uh, the ability to uh, maintain negative pressure, and it was tested with smoke. Uh, and is being developed as well uh, at the same time through a group of eMERGE intensivists uh, and anesthesiologist groups uh, out of VGH as well. The other kind of neat thing that people have tried to do to allow for positive pressure ventilation is uh, even rigging up things like these big Ziploc bags with uh, 15 liter suction coming into one end and an expiratory hose and oxygen coming out the other. Uh, allowing uh, for some positive pressure ventilation uh, of these patients. Okay, um, thanks, Mario. Yeah, that um, I think you or Donish had sent that uh, that video uh, to our. Um, our COVID webinar group about the uh, I think it was an anesthesiologist. Um, uh, who had that big Ziploc bag over his head, and it was pretty pretty interesting interesting to watch for sure. Um, a question from my dear friend Tracy Stephenson: uh, Is there any evidence LMAs are inadequate or dangerous airway control of COVID positive for the emergency airway? I have heard concerns, but can't seem to find evidence. And what I have found seems to relate to positioning, and an N95 over the mouth and nose would seem to take care of this. Is there evidence for concern? Uh, I'm concerned about time to tube versus LMA in an uncontrolled arrest on ward. Um, so Tracy, the ever brilliant, uh, wise person. Um, yeah, I don't, I, unfortunately, I have to say, Tracy, there's not, there's not good evidence, and I've looked for this uh, far and wide. I've been looking for this for the last number of weeks and hoping someone might actually publish something or looking into this further. But uh, I don't have I don't have strong evidence one way or another. I have spoken to uh, my anesthesia colleagues um, who have, uh, you know, I kind of feel like they're the sources of truth for this, and they were pretty. Uh, multiple anesthesiologists were were pretty pretty clear that no, they don't feel this this is safe at all. Um, and I think it was Dr. Logan Lee who I chatted with who was talking about, uh, it was Logan, yeah, um, about, he's like, I can tell you that uh, the LMAs aren't uh, protective of aerosols because of the bad headaches I get when I run sevofluorane through an LMA. And so uh, so that's evidence enough for me. And I think, again, we just need to take uh, take precautions and do whatever we can to, to protect our healthcare workers. Um, some uh, anesthesiologists have said, you know, if you put some track, some positive traction or positive pressure into the actual LMA, so physically forcing it down deeper so you get a better seal, that might help limit some of the aerosolization. But again, I don't know who we would volunteer to actually hold that LMA 
uh, down when they're going to be pretty close to that patient's uh, that patient's mouth. So it makes me a bit nervous. Um, I'm concerned too about time to tube versus LMA. The LMA is nice; you can quickly pop it in, and then you're good to go. Um, but uh, but I think again, it comes down to healthcare worker safety. So I think if you're dealing with a a high-risk COVID or a, a proven COVID, I think we just have to we just have to get that definitive airway in, and then feel uh, feel more secure in that. Um, and hopefully that answers uh, answers that question. Um, all right, Donna, where are we at right now? Um, oh yeah, so uh, Chloe, you were going to ask uh, answer the question about is the surgical mask alone really going to protect us from COVID? If so, if so, how long is it effective? And when do we need the N95 mask? I guess that's a bit of a loaded question. Will a surgical mask alone protect from COVID? We know that surgical masks protect from droplets when they're still effective. What is that effective lifespan of a, a surgical mask? Well, when a surgical mask gets damp, it opens the pores and therefore is more permeable to the virus. So a damp surgical mask doesn't work. Um, or is much less likely to work. There will be more getting through. And um, generally, by, and w when wearing a mask, it will become damp from just the humidity from our, of our mouths in about an hour and a half to two hours. So the recommendation is that if you're, if you're donning a surgical mask all day with the, the hopes that it will reduce the chance of getting COVID, uh, do change it every hour and a half to two. In Russia, there are, <clears throat> there are some docs or some, some institutions that are ironing their masks uh, dry ironing at two hours. Each healthcare provider has one, and they're doing that to uh, to dry them out and also re restore the pore size. Not can't say we're doing that here, but that's really a big question: is will that protect us? All the lo our local experts are saying yes. The the surgical mask protects you from the droplets. Now, are there is there aerosolization that we're not aware of, and should we all be wearing N95s? We know that that's the 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 big question, and we just don't know right now. Um, as, uh, as Omar said earlier, we're still being conservative with our, our PPE, um, but when an N95 is indicated and all those aerosol-generating medical procedures, um, absolutely don it, and don properly, it works. Another caveat with the masks is every time you put it on and take, remove it, you're bringing your hands to your, your face, which is an opportunity for contamination. So always being cognizant of hand and hygiene before applying and removing the mask now, how long is it effective for? I guess we answered that. It depends on whether it's soiled or damp or not. They tend to become damp um, in about an hour and a half. And when do you need the N95? So aerosol-generating medical procedures, um, that's CPR, intubation, BiPAP, CPAP, high-flow oxygen at more than 10 liters, um, bronchoscopy, other deeper suctioning. Those are the main ones. Um, have I missed anything for the aerosol-generating? Um, no, sorry. I was just and nebulizers. Through. Pardon, I did miss one. Nebulizers are aerosol generating. And, um, of course, CPR, I guess, but that's yeah. a different context. Um, yeah, that, uh, that is good. Thank you. And, uh, Donna, where are we at here in terms of... I guess on the masks, I can also add uh, cloth masks do not really help. About 97% of droplets and viral particles can get through the cloth masks, so they are not effective. A lot of people have been asking me... Um, in our department and locally if they could, you know, make their own masks. So I have a friend who owns a shop, they can make masks. Really before um, endorsing a mask, we'd want it verified by our infection control people and medical microbiologists because false, uh, a false sense of security isn't going to get any of us anywhere other than sick. 
Um, thank you, Chloe. That was a, that was a tough one to answer. And I think um, the reality of it, and Adam, Mario, Donish, um, Chloe can all speak up if I'm saying blasphemous stuff here, but uh, to my understanding, there's no great evidence that, you know, even the N95 is much better than a surgical mask. They're both, both probably equally effective. Now, if I'm going to go intubate a patient, I'm still going to use an N95, and I'm going to do exactly what Chloe said. But I think the evidence behind uh, N95s being, um, or I should, let me rephrase, um, that surgical masks are much worse than N95 is it's just not there. So just we'll something to that about. case. There was a report out of Singapore where there was one patient before he was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 um, had exposed 41 healthcare workers. Some donned surgical masks. Some had donned, P, donned the N95s, and there was no transmission to either. And this was during aerosol generating procedures. So. Yeah, the question's still, the verdict's still out. Um, another question, and maybe uh, we can uh, go towards uh, Danish, is can you address the questions in regards to the utility of chest x-ray and CT, please? I don't think there's much uh, utility there. I think uh, getting the CT is uh, not really going to tell you any more information that you wouldn't get from a chest x-ray from a clinical presentation. It doesn't change our management, doesn't uh, change our guidance of anything. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think it just backs up the ER and it's a use of resources that aren't necessary. Um, as for chest x-rays, sometimes, I mean, we're getting them for most of our patients, but is it guiding our management at all? Not really. Uh, the, the chest x-ray in the majority of patients look almost cookie cutter, um, and it hasn't really been all that uh, that useful. Uh, again, I guess it all depends on the prevalence of the disease in the area, but if you're having the symptoms, we're presuming you to be COVID positive. Uh, if you're not hypoxic, you're going home. If you're coming into the hospital, we will swab you, but uh, not much utility in terms of uh, change our clinical management between for chest CT or chest x-ray. Uh, thank you, Donish, and I think um, can't stress enough uh, that uh, POCUS is definitely uh, quite valuable here and reduces uh, other healthcare uh, staff to go in or to transport the patient to the scanner or have our X-ray tech come in and uh, and and have multiple people sort of help move the patient and put the uh, the um, the cassette below them. Um, but I suppose in New York, you guys are probably all digital now, so probably have no idea what a cassette is. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm very proud of my uh, my co-presenters um, uh, here in that both Adam and Mario have uh, just recently had acceptance into various journals. I think CMAJ for uh, for Adam and CGEM for Mario or vice versa on, on POCUS. And so maybe... Uh, uh, Adam, do you want to chat a little bit about um, about some of the findings that we might find? And uh, and Mario, you can um, add any extra insights there if you'd like. Adam? Oh, I defer to Mario. He's the master in this one. Um, but maybe I'll just say, so B-lines like you, if you've picked up an ultrasound probe before and scanned some lungs, specifically in heart failure, when you see those diffuse B-lines, the common tails everywhere, um, what you're looking for in COVID patients are patches of those B-lines or, or confluent B-lines. And then other things like subpleural thickening, um, some pleural consolidations, those kind of things. You can take a look and, and really look at them in these articles. I think uh, Mario's got some great examples as well. Um, so I might hand this over to Mario. And I, I personally want Mario to discuss uh, issues around CPR too, if that's okay. Um, yeah, sure. Thanks, Adam. Uh, dude, your paper was pretty awesome, too. Uh, there's, um, 
I think really there's not much to add to what uh, Adam said. I think uh, for focus uh, when you do the um, when you do the assessment, make sure you're thorough. Do a 12-point assessment. Um, look for plural irregularity and the absence of plural fusions is usually pretty in keeping with uh, COVID-19 disease. And uh, the patchy uh, abnormalities in the lungs that you often see in many other pneumonias, as well as uh, bron air bronchograms that are quite present. The other thing that I think POCUS is useful for is in ruling out other disease that it could be. I think that's probably where POCUS is going to be the most useful. So if you're doing an ultrasound, I encourage people to do the ultrasound not to confirm COVID, but to uh, rule out heart failure, to rule out pneumothorax, to rule out other etiologies of hypoxia, uh, hypoxemia and hypoxia. Um, in terms of the other question, I mean, did you want to add any more? Are you pretty happy with that? I, like that. I, I think that's amazing. What I'll say is we always have to remember to be doctors. We were before COVID. Please, please, please do not have anchor bias. That's what Mario's trying to tell you. That is, someone comes in huff and puffing, don't just automatically call it COVID and go that way and miss a pneumoplural effusion from a cancer, et cetera, et cetera. We still have to address shock and respiratory failure the exact same way we would have before COVID. And, and to echo that, you know, at the end of the day, COVID is a special viral pneumonia, but it's a viral pneumonia nonetheless. And we have been very good at treating viral pneumonias for the good part of 100 years, So, uh, which is really support. So I don't know if we're good, but we have a method, and we should stick to it. Um, with respect to one of the big questions that's come out, uh, especially with large volumes of patients flooding the emergency room and the intensive care unit, I think one of the most important questions uh, to answer is who will benefit from ventilation? Who will benefit from a good run of intensive care? And I think that is something worth spending some time on. Um, we kind of come up with a uh, hodgepodge of different things that have yet to be completely tested, but based on the clinical uh, frailty score, um, which uh, a lot of people are familiar with, some people aren't, and basically, it ranges from a score of one to very fit to nine terminally ill. But uh, the recommendations that Providence Health and Vancouver Coastal likely will follow suit uh, will be that uh, one, age over 80 and uh, a CFS score greater than or equal to four, uh, an age over 65 and CFS score greater than or equal to six, uh, any age with a CFS score greater than 7 due to a progressive illness or condition, age greater than 55, and uh, and a finding of advanced chronic illness, such as COPD, like severe COPD, uh, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis with uh, significantly reduced vital capacity, or severe pulmonary hypertension, um, as, uh, along with heart, bad heart failure, metastatic cancer, or advanced kidney disease, as well as progressive dementia with functional decline. Anything, any age, like any age really with um, progressive conditions, as well as age 55 or greater with one of the ones that I've mentioned before. Um, also, the same things apply to people who have had unwitnessed cardiac arrest or witnessed uh, unshockable rhythms that, you know, uh, treat those patients the same way that you would treat them before, but perhaps in the setting of a pandemic, um, recognizing and respecting that the mortality 
profile in the hospital uh, or you know survival to meaningful neurological discharge from hospital is quite low. And we can post this document up uh, with the CPD email once it's done as well because I recognize me uh, rambling off some numbers is not helpful. Uh, what is uh, what is important to know is that we, we do have some criteria that are being established provincially and that it is probably going to be a large um, an important way that we manage our ventilator resource. Okay, thanks so much, uh, Mario. I just want to um, reiterate a few things that uh, both you and Adam said is uh, um, in regards to the anchoring bias, I think just firsthand, I've definitely seen that this past week that I've been in the ICU and significant delays uh, in therapy and significant delays in getting to patients. Um, and it's it's led to some 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 morbidity uh, related to that. So we still need to well, we can't forget that you know yeah again uh, it might be a pneumonia. It still can be bacterial uh, shock. Can still be the other etiologies of shock that we always need to go through. So make sure you keep your differential broad. Also recognize uh, we had a case today of a gentleman who unfortunately died, but uh, he didn't want to come into hospital because he thought uh, he might get infected with COVID, and, and he just came in profoundly. Uh, profoundly unwell and uh, despite uh, aggressive resuscitations died and talking to his family members they were trying to get him to come in for the last number of days but just refused to come in because he wanted to uh, he did not want to expose himself to anyone so just kind of sad things there uh, in terms of the um, the the CPR again I also want to reiterate um, and it might contradict what I just said but when you are doing CPR this is one of the most highly um, aerosolizing, gener um, generating procedures. So please uh, don properly and, and make sure you and your staff are, are safe. And uh, what I'm recommending to a lot of uh, our physicians here is, um, you know, uh, don't don't start CPR uh, until you're fully donned. And if you if you do have an arrest, maybe while everyone's donning, uh, one of the uh, one of the team members can go in uh, just with droplet precautions on because it's much easier to put that on than the full airborne and uh, have a quick look on the monitor, maybe put them on the pads. If there's something shockable, quickly shock that, obviously. Um, and then also do a quick uh, EFAST and look to see if there are any um, quickly reversible etiologies. Um, and also take a look at the heart. If it's if you've got complete standstill, well, maybe that's a time to, to not start doing CPR. And you know, have a look for the pneumothorax, have a look for the big pericardial effusion, look to see if that big RV is... Yeah, if, if there's a big RV, have a look to see if there's a DVT. It'll give you a bit of idea as to where you might go. And in the interim, hopefully your team will come in and, and then you can proceed from there. Uh, in the interest of time, I think we're going to ask uh, two really highly trending questions. And the first one I'm going to ask uh, Dr. McDonald here to, uh, to ask. And it's for Mario. Thanks, Omar. This one just popped up here. Uh, is Mario in a call room or a jail cell? <laughs> Honestly, uh, it feels like a jail cell. I, I walked in today and I looked at it and I said, oh my goodness, how many people have had COVID spit all over this bed? It's my call. I'm, a, I'm part of the airway uh, rapid response team at uh, Abbotsford and Burnaby where I work uh, doing a deep on Okay, perfect. We just wanted to clarify that so in the audience sort of, uh, you know, we're questioning why you're calling in from a bed. Um, yeah, so we just want to clarify that you are on call, and thank you so much for uh, for taking this while you are uh, on call. That's amazing. The next question um, is, Doctor, and then it says in brackets, Younger Ahmad, are you febrile from COVID-19, or are you really just this hot all the time? So I just want to say I'm actually the older Ahmad. Um, 
But uh, anyways, yeah, Donish is uh, Donish is a pretty impressive guy in all realms. So uh, I don't know if it's the fever or just him. And I think that brings us up to uh, to nine o'clock. So unless any of the panelists have anything else they want to add, or if Bob, you want anything to add at this point, I think we will end it with the uh, the question about Donish and his febrile state. Oof. Right. I will say one thing. I hope you guys uh, weather the storm a lot better than we do, and uh, uh, and I hope you learn from our experience. Uh, and good luck. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Take care. Yeah. So let let me um, just say I'm Bob here. I'm 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 sure so many of you love to continue hearing this incredible panel for a lot longer, but. We have hit 90 minutes and need to stop. Um, uh, I'd like to really express my sincere gratitude to the panel. I mean, they're all really dedicated and even heroic positions, as well as excellent educators that have taken the time from their busy lives, very heavy critical clinical duties. To answer your questions tonight, I'm, I'm sure we all really appreciate it. And and um, and if possible, I'm, I'm hoping we can continue to bring them back in the coming week to offer you more sessions like this. And, Danish, we all feel for you. We hope you get better soon. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Yeah. Um, I also want to thank our, our audience for attending and, and hope this session was of value to you. Uh, please take a few minutes right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain study credits as well as to provide feedback to us on tonight's webinar. Finally, I, I thought I, uh, you might want to know about some of the upcoming webinars in, in this uh, series uh, of COVID-19 um, updates. Um, on, uh, on Thursday night, we're having one uh, primary care in the time of COVID-19, where three family physicians, primary care physicians, will share their experience, one from a rural, one from an urban setting, and one from an inner city marginalized population. Um, we're then hoping to have a, a next one on next Tuesday night, week today, on maternity care, have a panel talking about maternity care issues specifically related to COVID-19. And then uh, next Thursday, uh, next week Thursday, uh, a, a, a panel on addictions management. Uh, and as I said again, we want to get this panel tonight back too. So we'll let you know if I can in, in, encourage them and get them to agree to do that. Um, so let me thank, you know, all of them, Omar Ahmed, um, Adam Thomas, Danish Ahmed, Mario Francis Pergasum, Chloe Lemire Moore, and Donovan McDonald, uh, who's done a stellar job of keeping us going with the question. So thank you all, and, uh, and good night. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis, spelled M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 